Welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast with me, your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Every fortnight, join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Episode 96. This week, we are with Kirsty Castles. This is the first of two episodes with her. This is the only one that's going to be released today. And I'll do the next one next week uh, because right now I'm on holiday. And you might be able to hear I'm in a slightly noisy house in France recording without my nice microphones. So I got to keep this intro as short as possible. So first thing, this episode has quite a few parallels and overlaps with the last two episodes with Shannon Berry in that it is um, someone that began life training as an architect uh, and then has moved away. And I should say there is, I'm not uh, trying to this or criticize or encourage people to not be architects. Um, I think that people being good, sustainable architects is a really important thing um, moving forwards. Uh, sometimes you just get these sort of synchronicities with uh, podcast guests. And these two were actually recorded on the same day. And we ended up talking about a lot of the same things. So first of all, not architect bashing. We end up talking quite a lot about the Prince's Foundation um, and Hartwing gets mentioned quite a lot. Uh, maybe you don't know, but Hartwing was a company that I started uh, with Joe Derwin. Um, it is the first episode in this podcast. We talk about our work there. It's not something that I am part of anymore. Uh, and the company has moved in a, a slightly different direction, but it is nonetheless something I'm very, very proud of. And I often have the, the great pleasure of working with students that came through the Heartwin program. So yes, if you'd like to hear more about what that was all about, head to episode one. Before we get into the episode, I uh, just want to say thanks to some of the new patrons. We have to say thanks to Chris Barker, who has gone for the handcraft wooden spoon level. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Gabriella Rhodes. Thank you very much, Gabriella. Uh, Nicholas Fisher, uh, also going for a spoon level and Matthew Jones also going for a spoon level. I am going to be carving loads of spoons and thanks very much to Ross Langley, who is building a lovely, lovely tiny home at the moment, uh, for increasing his amount. Yeah. As always, thank you so much to all of the patrons, um, for supporting the podcast. And I just wanted to say uh, that. There are plenty of other ways that you can support this podcast without having to give money. Uh, one of them is to share this episode far and wide in whatever networks you've got. There are sharing links on the website. Uh, you can often find posts on Instagram or Facebook where I've linked to the, uh, the episode. You can share those into your, to your groups, into your networks. The other way is that you can leave a review and uh, the best place to do that is on iTunes. Um, I'll stick a link in the show notes. If you could do that, that just really helps other people find the podcast and uh, and we can increase the reach. I'm going to read you just one of them we received recently uh, that says, Five stars. I'm a changed man. I never write reviews, but I'm writing this because this podcast oh. is so incredible. I never become a patron, but I started here because this podcast needs to continue. I never binge anything but I just binged half the podcast in one day because they're so interesting and entertaining. I guess this show, Building Sustainability, has changed me. Hopefully, it'll change the world. Go get them, Jeffrey. Ah, isn't that nice? That was by someone called Bert. Thank you, Bert. Um, yeah, so if you get a chance, uh, it really would help and wouldn't cost you anything. Um, I'm going to be back very, very briefly at the end. Uh, but I'm just going to hand you straight over to the most excellent Kirsty Castles. Enjoy the episode. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Well, I thought I'd start by saying that uh, we, I think this is true, we first met at the Big Straw Bale Gathering, Mm -hmm. where you were there with other friend of the podcast. Do you remember? There were lots of people there. (laughs) Little excited Scottish man. Oh, Scott McCauley! (laughs) Yes, of course. Yeah, he was there, wasn't he? Is that the first time you met Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Met you two together and was like, Oh. Wow, so much enthusiasm and energy. And it's <laughs> like, what's happening in Scotland? Someone's put something in the water. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then oh. it's it's been really nice sort of seeing you both go off and do, mm. you know, incredible things. So. And even our story goes back further than that. So I met Scott on a hempcrete weekend working for and with Alex Farrow. Mm-hmm. So I met this small, enthusiastic bundle of excitement um, architecture student there. And, well, actually, at that point, he was pretty down about all of the sustainability and, and how it wasn't um, prevalent in architectural education. And so, yeah, when I met him, I was like, oh, dude, you know, you should, have you heard of these people? Have you heard of that people? Like, don't worry, Scotland's full of people. I'll, I'll help you find the people. Um, yeah, and so to watch him grow constantly is is such a joy because yeah um yeah he's smashing it and a great like source of enthusiasm um and actually positivity you know just what what can be done and what can be changed so yeah that's nice yeah that is a nice to remember because i remember it because i met all of the heartwind gang you Mm, know of that particular era i remember meeting lots of really lovely people and Heartwind, and that was the first time that I met you guys in person as well. So yeah, yeah, it was good. yeah. That was when we'd been in the Scotland Scotland build, I think. Oh yeah, the Roundhouse. Yeah. Yes, and then you mm-hmm. said you said to me earlier that uh, you came to a Heartwind build. Um, I don't, so I don't remember that in my travels, I uh, worked for Jana at Green Architecture. Oh, of while. course, that was my, <laughs> yeah. I do remember. I just imagined. I was like picturing you sort of rocking up on your own and I was like I don't remember no, that happening but of course yes <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so I think it's just a combination of that was the summer where I actually quit my job and decided to go on my own um and so I was doing a bit of freelance work for Jana and so I'd been going around the country at this point and I was down that in the country so I was like I definitely want to go see what the Heartland guy, Gang are doing and because it was her project and everything um it was just a nice a nice way to get to see it, see what was happening. Yeah, we got you muddy, didn't we? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. Right in there <laughs> with the, the straw and everything. I enjoyed that. Yeah, I wouldn't have come and not got involved. <laughs> I would have stayed for a week if I could. But I think I had some <laughs> other engagement to go to. So, yeah. Um, no, that was fun as well. So, when I met you, I think at that point you were architecting did you how far into your architecting did you get there's a few there's a few overlapping years don't worry um Mm. a lot of people are like what were you doing then (laughs) what are you doing now Um, I, I, I was sort of reflecting just because I knew this conversation was coming up so I think it's fair to say that I whole ended architecture as a job and a career for a good 10 11 12 years I've been doing the whole thing since I started uh, 15 years now. And I'd say the last five years I've definitely been building. Mm-hmm. And there's an overlap before that of designing and building. Okay. It, that sums it a yep. wee bit. <laughs> yeah. um, so in terms of how far I got, um, I am one of those slightly irritating people that refuse to do their final part three exam. 
So I am not allowed to, and you are not allowed to call me an architect because mm. I am legally not an architect. Yes. Um, so did you did you do because part three, to my understanding, you know, from the outsider, uh, is sort of like uh, it's a whole couple of years, isn't it? Of, of yeah, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a, another year or two. Yeah. So. Um, so did you actually start so I, that, but not do the exam, or did you just not even? No, I'm not entertaining that. You didn't even because <laughs> I mean, I've every time I've spoken to architects or you know uh, architectural technicians, is that what you call yourself? Part two. Yeah. Um, I've always thought, like, why on earth would you put yourself through that part three? It sounds it's horrible. A blooming good question there, Jeffrey. <laughs> well, I'd said very early on I was never going to do it, so it was an easy one for me. Um, I'd mm. say like so typically so I did not do this but typically you would study your undergraduate degree which is like three or four years depending on the course um do you then get like a bachelor's and you're called a part one so then you have this part one year out where you're supposed to do like a year's work experience and a practice to get some practical experience under your belt then you go back and you do two years of either a like you know, postgraduate degree, a professional diploma or a master's to equivalent to come out of that with a part two. Then you go into practice and, you know, if you'd been doing some like part-time work during that time, if you'd been working for yourself or if you'd taken longer in the year out, wherever you're at will determine the point at which you decide that you want to go ahead and sit your part three exam. But you have, there's stuff to study, you know, so there's a good amount that you just need to kind of sign up for, go to the, um, go to the classes and, and do your studying. Um, and then the final exam is like a, a written book exam and an interview. And, and typically, I think it's sort of set around like one project that you have been involved in from start to finish. So you kind of have to be at the stage where like you know how to run a job from start to finish or at least you know how you should run a job from start to finish because I would be very interested to speak to part three examiners on who's ever sat down and been like, well, it went perfectly from start to finish, you know, like textbook <laughs> stuff. Um, in fact, to be honest, the most interesting thing is, I mean, at some point it would be lovely to be a part three examiner because the most interesting thing is learning the lessons and how people know that that's not how it should have gone or how it's been tripped up or you know what how, how they it, yeah that that's the most interesting part is how people come around their part three and um, I've heard such interesting tales on like what people have used their part three and so that's the sort of typical education and then that's you you're an architect and um, capital A architect yes capital A architect legally allowed to call yourself that join the register of you know the architects registration board have your professional piece fees to pay and in the eyes of the public you are then a very respectable and um qualified tick in the box person to be dealing with your building requirements mm-hmm. um however typically by that point you haven't had any chance to i mean you might have done but if you're just doing the typical run that takes you like 10, 11 years, something like that, and that's you qualified, you would possibly have been able to like go to all realms of architecture. You know, you, you won't necessarily have done the small extension and residential stuff up to the skyscrapers. You must have had enough experience in all of it to understand all of it. But I think at that point, you're either in a practice that does a certain thing or you have a certain mindset of like, I'd like to learn and go down this route. And then I guess it's nice because then there's a whole career ahead of you of learning new things. Like now people are learning passive house training, um, which is great because that's upskilling and you're always doing CPDs. Um, so that's, that's, that's the typical, I want to be an architect. That's how I get to that point. Um, this is not my journey, <laughs> nor is it my experience. Um, and mostly this comes down to the fact that I had no inclination to be an architect. It was not, I did not grow up wanting oh, to be an architect. Interesting. Yeah. So, so um, how did I you fell end up this. doing the training? So I, at school, had a whole other thing in mind. I left school as quickly as I could with the qualifications that I needed in order to get onto a university course and leave and you know go off and be a grown-up, do my thing. Um, and I found out very quickly that 
studying what I was studying and being where I was, you weren't really utilizing your time a whole amount. Like you couldn't really get part-time job because, you know, classes and lectures and stuff didn't, you know, concertina into two or three days. It was all spread out and you were there, you were not there. And I just, I found the whole thing very frustrating. Um, and so, so, you know, I, I had to say to my, my mum, like, uh, I think I made a mistake, you know, because I was quite stubborn for my whole teenage years. I was just like, well, I'm going to do this. And all the guidance counsellors and all the parents and everybody were just like, oh, great. She knows what she wants to do, you know, but no one really grilled me on it. No one really ever sat down and was like, but don't you want to do anything else? <laughs> they were just excited that one person knew what they wanted to do and off she went. Um, yeah. And I, I don't regret any of it. It was great. I like, you know, it was definitely two years of being a student and, being an adult and doing my own thing but it, it just like it wasn't fulfilling and it wasn't what I wanted to do and I I realized I just had made a mistake and that's not what I wanted to do so my are you, mom are you deliberately not telling me what what it is yeah it's not relevant it's interesting but it's not relevant but what, um, what is it? It, was, <laughs> it was forensic science oh wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally not relevant I I can't remember a single thing I I essentially studied inorganic chemistry to like second year level at university and I cannot tell you anything about anything to do with chemistry like I just forgot it all it's and that's what I mean it was a real struggle to like pass any of the tests and stuff because I was just constantly I think I even got a tutor to get my chemistry higher like which is an A-level like uh, I just it wasn't suited to me I was going down the science route I just never had meant that it's just that when I was young I wanted to be Sherlock Holmes and uh I quite like science because it made it, it gave you answers to things and you put the two together. Forensic science, CSI came out then. So then, oh nice, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. watched a whole <laughs> yeah. lot of that. Can yeah, well understand so did that. a lot of other people. And uh, so then, by the time I got to uni, there was a ton of different people and a ton of different courses that ultimately weren't going to get a job because there's like one job every ten years in Scotland. So I was just like, why am I doing this? Like this. Or the other avenues, and then the other avenues were like you'd end up as a chemist or a pharmacist or you know some, something in a realm that was just not of any interest to me. I just wanted to find a bad guy. So, uh, <laughs> just so yes, completely irrelevant to everything I've ever done since. And it was, my mum basically suggested architecture, and her reasoning was like that it was creative, that um, there was an element of problem solving, that it was people orientated, that um, there was a bit of like work involved and um, organization and project management she she sold me a job she sold me the idea of a job that had multiple avenues and multiple areas in which I could potentially thrive and would enjoy um, whereas most people want to be an architect because they want to design cool buildings if that makes sense but mm -hmm. I think that this gave me an advantage because I went into this industry and I did some research on the job and like whether I would enjoy the job and her real clinching <laughs> you know the real moment where I was like salt was um she said that the local architects practice that we had used for an extension were taking on or did have some apprentices and trainees and so maybe I could approach them and they would take me on as a, an apprenticeship and um well, I got that stuck on my head and I was like, wait, wait, wait. So I could study and do the job. So I do the job every day, but then study like, you know, once or twice a week. Um, and so I was very, very lucky and that that initial practice took me on. It was pre-recession. So like we're talking 2006, 2007, something like that. So it was pre-recession. I was very, very lucky to be taken on. Um, they'd only actually taken on architectural technicians as apprentices before. Their course is like more like four years, five if you're doing honours. And they are not fully trained up to architect stasis with the design involved in their coursework, but mostly to do with like um, doing detailed drawings, construction drawings, that kind of stuff. So they had a few of them in, but they hadn't taken on an architect, you know, trainee architect. So they, they created this title trainee architect and the industry kind of accepted it, even though I was using the title architects because we put trainee at the front. <laughs> Everyone was okay with it. And we sort of just, we just went with it. And I, didn't get into art school the first year because there was only one course in Scotland that offered part-time, which was Glasgow School of Art. Uh, right. I don't know if that's changed, but even then at the time, there was only six of us that did it. So six students in the whole of Scotland on average every year were getting part-time education. It just wasn't an avenue. 
Um, but I did it and it was brilliant <laughs> because uh, like Monday, all day Monday, I'd go to Glasgow, sit in lectures all day, do my tutorials in the evenings. And then Tuesday through Friday, I would be at work. And and then I think a Tuesday night and a Thursday night, I had to leave a bit early, get the bus up to Glasgow, do tutorials. Um, and I did that for four years. Um, but I just learned so much in that initial practice. And there was an older retired gentleman who was my boss's original boss when he started out and he'd come back at a retirement to help us out and I remember him saying to me very very early on Kirsty you won't actually be an architect until you're like 60 (laughs) so he basically framed it that you won't know enough and have done enough and have enough experience to really feel like you are an architect until you are about 60 and then you retire and I just remember thinking that this was a fabulous thing because it just gave me like so much time to explore and learn and go on this journey in which one day I would become an architect. Whereas other people's expectations are like, I need to get through the part one, the part two, the part three, and then I'll be an architect. So I think from day one, I was very much sold a different idea um, with very different mentalities around the entire job. Um and it worked out in my favour. And ultimately, the last ever paid job I did in a studio, in an architect studio, all I did was design buildings all day. Like I didn't have to do the, the, the project management part. I didn't have to do the technical detail drawings. Ultimately, I ended up in this job where I was doing every architect's dream job, which was just designing all day. <laughs> um, and yet that was never my intention, you know. And it, it was actually a very difficult job to leave, knowing full well that, all my peers would have loved to have been in my position and yet mm-hmm. it wasn't like the full package for me. And so I had to kind of like make a choice that I wanted more than that and that I wanted to move on. Um, but yeah, I ultimately ended up in my mind being an architect, you know, in that, in that sense of like doing the job of designing things. Um, so I, I did my part one and I learned a lot and I was there for four or five years. And what I learned was that I felt that the, architecture had become a profession which in some ways had taken on some job roles that weren't necessarily what they used to be in back in the day and uh, and when I say back in the day I do mean like you know way back like really like Gaudi's day of like, <laughs> like whatever you know just like people that were sculptors and and stonemasons and carpenters and 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 probably amassed a huge variety of experience to the point where when they were nearly 60, they designed this building and they pulled it off and it was a beautiful piece of artwork. Like that was an architect. So I got really stubborn on the fact that an architect comes from architecton and that means master builder. So I got quite stuck on this idea that I was doing a job that I didn't agree with was the right way to be the thing that you were going to be and that I thought a lot of architects should know how to build more and that they should be more hands-on but I could see that that profession was not set up that way so from this point of view I decided I was going to leave it entirely (laughs) and go and learn to build um so yeah basically after my part one I just um I sort of I think I framed it as like a year out to everyone um, even to myself, I mm-hmm. was like, well, you know, I've got a bit of money saved up. Like, it's been five years of hard, you know, hard work. I mean, I don't know now how I did it. I was full-time employed. Uh, I studied full-time. It was a full-time course. It was a full-time architecture course. But you just had to do it in your spare time. But if you've ever, have you ever met a part one architecture student? <laughs> I have, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty full-on course. Like, um I fully expected to break my don't drink to your coffee rule during that course and then need espressos to keep me up. But it never happened. I just just got on with it. I also had a full-time social life, you know, lived in my, in full-time my social friends. Life. Oh, yeah. I was like, <laughs> I mean, I was out all the time. Like, you were, you were part-timing that aspect. Acoustic nights out, like holidays with Pat. Like, I, I mean, I honestly could not do that now like that was a thing to do in your late teens and early 20s there's no way I could deal with even one aspect of any of that now. <laughs> like 
even a full-time job exhausts me now. Like even full-time <laughs> education, even full-time socialising, that all exhausts me now. So, um, you know, this just shows and ages me slightly that that was something I was able to achieve. Um, but I decided to take this year out and the intention was I want to volunteer as much as possible on actual buildings and get construction experience. I felt really I just felt very hypocritical being an architect and not knowing how the things went together. And I don't know if that's, it's not fair to say that it's applicable to the title of architect or the job role of architects, just me as a person. I needed to know how things went together. I'm a practical person. I'm, I'm a doer, you know, I learn by doing. I just needed to know more before drawing these details. And I don't think that is unusual because I have since tutored and mentored many architecture students who seek out ways to learn. Um, and I've, you know, obviously since then found courses that offer more than that. But at the time, I just desperately needed to be doing something that, I guess, boosted my knowledge. Um, uh, and at the same time, I just kind of wanted to go traveling and see a bit of the world because everyone else had been a student for four years and I had done all of that. Um, so I kind of, I guess, decided that the, the idea of the travelling would be getting a plane, go somewhere and uh, volunteer my skills in exchange for get to stay somewhere and see the world. And I did quite, I did that quite successfully and quite enjoyably. And, you know, I've definitely been around to some interesting places. Where, and, what, um, what sort of places I, did you end up? Um, I started in Ireland, um, which is great great project called Commonage Callan. Um I met some lovely people, still in touch and still good friends with one of them. Um, but mostly that was kind of um, architecture students who were basically doing the same. They were trying to provide an opportunity for us all to get hands-on building experience. And I loved that project because um, I was totally obsessed with bricks. I still am a bit obsessed with bricks. I'm just not a mason. I've not gone down that route, but I'm still completely obsessed with bricks and I collect them with like the name stamped on them and stuff like that. So, um, uh, and this comes from way back then. And I, I just loved bricks. And so we were on site on the first day and someone said, so um, this is our local bricky. He's going to teach some of us how to like to build with these reclaimed bricks. Does anyone specifically want to do that? I was like, oh, maybe please. Can I do that? Um, and so I worked with this Irish bricklayer. This old, old guy taught me for a couple of days how to lay bricks and uh, and taught me the pattern and how to set it all up and stuff. And then it was beautiful because then I did really well at it. And so they were happy for me to then teach all the other volunteers. So that just became my job. And I got to stay on the brickwork wall for the whole period of time. And I did think, you know, maybe I should be learning a bit of that. Maybe I should learn a bit of the timber and this, that. And, and I thought, no, I'm really enjoying the brickwork. And there was some satisfaction in having done it well enough that people were then being able to learn from me. And a really beautiful moment was there was these two old Irish fellas up on the scaffold above me and they were talking about things. And one, and I'm not even going to try and do the accent, but basically one of them said, Oh, have you seen this lassie down here? Oh yeah, she's killing it. She's doing great, you know. And I was, and they didn't know I could hear them, and I was so chuffed because I was like, they think I'm doing a good job. This is great. Um, so I was really pleased. So I did that, and then I went off to Costa Rica. Um, that was really the kind of get on a plane and go somewhere. And there, I actually learned more about permaculture and about living off grid and living within your means, and a lot about food production, uh, water recycling. It was more a holistic view of building and life and natural building materials. It probably that's what cemented like the whole why are we using all these like awful materials in the world? Like we can just use bamboo if you're in Costa Rica, obviously. Like if you're not, <laughs> different story. But I, I ended up with quite a lot of knowledge in that part of the world about building in that part of the world in natural building materials and when I came back to the UK it was a little difficult because it's like okay I need to try and get these principles but understand how to do that in this climate with what we have and so that became a bit of an aim you know and I know I know you've experienced that as well like you go somewhere else you learn all about it you're totally sold you feel like a little bit of an expert in it because you've been doing it for ages and then you come back to the UK and you're like uh this isn't mm, a, no one knows about it. No one's talking about it. And B, I mean, can we even do that here? Like, it, it, and Scotland, Scotland's even worse because it's raining and colder up here. So, it, you know, it's really like a lot of the stuff I learned, it was just like, how can I apply this here? Um, and then I ended up in a beautiful life event sort of way. I ended up in Wales, in North Wales, 
And I ended up volunteering on this beautiful project in on the Sleem Peninsula. And I've met beautiful people there throughout the years. It's one of those hubs we were chatting about earlier where you end up knowing someone that knows someone that's been there and it's just a beautiful, lovely place. And it's run um, by this lovely man, uh, David Davis Hughes, and he's put his heart and soul into creating a place that you can learn traditional building skills and it's living off the land and it's living in a community. And that's where I learned about like community building and um, and timber framing. That's my first experience of green oak timber framing, which I was just obsessed with. Um, they have this beautiful barn and they had all the facilities to be able to learn. And and also that's where I really learned that volunteer made things are inherently higher quality eventually. Like, so their theory is that, you know, like if you get, a, if you get someone in that's a trade, they will do it, but they will do it quickly with the knowledge that they have. But if you get, um, volunteers to do it okay initially it might not be perfect but they they have so much enthusiasm to get it perfect that they will stay longer they will try harder they will they almost like strive for perfectionism and it ends up with this much much more beautiful outcome because you have and it's nothing against the trees it's just that you have the time and love to pour into a building and I learned all of that from there and they did thatching they did slate roofing we did um, green oak timber framing working with Willow. It's just a very nice place what, to what's have that found called? in the UK. It's Felon Ucha. I've have I've heard, heard it? it many times from different people. Um Yeah. JJ that Potter, doesn't surprise me. Who I don't know if you yes. know. Yeah, you know him? Yeah, yeah. Do you know him from I there? Met him. Um I mean I I didn't meet him there, but I know him because of there. We have met since and that is the connection. Yes. Yeah. He's a uh, um, former former Princess Foundation Building craft Is apprentice. Oh, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't realize. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover, and I would love that to become cemented someday in some way that they could provide, you know, um, placements for the building craft program or something like that. I'm sure they've been approached before. I mean, it's just a wonderful place. Um, um, and and yes, I just think that being in a country like Wales was lovely. Wales is is quite forward thinking in terms of living off the land and it, there are so many pockets and communities of people that are working with sustainable building materials as well and um, natural building materials and there's one planet development so the government's kind of on it and it, it that was I spent years in Wales basically like I'd, I sort of came back from my year you know going around the world and then ended up just being in Wales and I'd never been to Wales before you know it's not somewhere I'd ever considered um, and yeah, it was just such a beautiful, magical place full of like hippies everywhere. It was great. Um, and 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 there, someone said to me, "Have you heard about the Center for Alternative Technology?" I was like, "No, I have not. What is it?" And they said, "Well, I'm pretty sure they do a sustainable part two architecture degree." So I had at this point decided I wasn't going back to do my second part, my part two, because it was not aligned with what I wanted to achieve. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I guess in most natural builders journeys, there comes a point of like, okay, I'm totally in love with this, but now what, um, you know, how do I study this more? And this is something I have come across a lot recently, which we'll go into later about the building side of things, but there's just this barrier to learning more from a natural building perspective, like you're not a trade, you don't go to college, you don't have skills, you can't go on a job site, but you know a lot and you have have an enthusiasm for it and a love for it. But there's, how do you progress? Like, how do you get a job out of it? How do you get a career out of it? How do you build a life for yourself? And I think I'm just lucky enough that I'd already done architecture. So therefore, that combined with that, I ended up at CAT, uh, the Centre for Alternative Technology. And oh, I just found my tribe there. Honestly, it was just oh, it's brilliant because it's it's when our course was running, we were doing a part two in architecture, but we were actually doing all of the coursework of the MSc that they ran. So the MSc was in sustainable adaptation in the built environment. So you had John Butler on your podcast previously, mm-hmm. and he was on the MSc course. So we were doing the same lectures and. Um, I guess uh, 
handings and stuff like that and um, practicals essays that kind of stuff as John would be doing but we also then got like added design because we were aiming for a professional diploma in architecture and it was just fantastic because everyone there was interested in self-led community-led buildings uh, hands-on very practical our tutor has to be mentioned um Duncan Roberts um just the king of you know timber frame self-build community-led building and and that feeds into the year group that someone is tutoring you know and 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 he definitely affected all of our uh, lives in in many ways but he but he also just provided us with the opportunity to go with what it is we felt was right which was that we should be building and designing, you know, and we should these things should not be separate. Um, and so it was wonderful to find a place that my two interests were combined and could like suddenly merge into this one thing. Um, or so I thought. One thing is what I thought at the time. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so naive. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd kind of nailed it. I thought I was like, right, that's it. I'm a sustainable architect. This is it. Like, I can do that. Um, and again, like life happened, things happened. I ended up back in Scotland and I decided I'd like to choose to stay in Scotland for a little while because I'd always run away and I'd always thought the adventure was somewhere else. And I didn't know what to do because I had never grown a network in Scotland. I only had the original, very professional based architectural contacts that I had and um, very art school-based context that I had. And they, all of that was in, very much part of the industry, but it was part of the more mainstream construction industry, um, uh, doing more, a little bit more mainstream projects. And I just had all this sustainable knowledge and I had all this building knowledge by this point and natural building materials. And, and so coming back to Scotland was a bit of a shock because <laughs> it was like, well, I don't know anyone up here. Like, what do I do? And, uh, and it was Duncan who introduced me to CEDA. So CEDA is the Scottish Ecological Design Association. And it was another moment of like, oh, I found my tribe. Oh, great. Wonderful. And it's a collection of like architects, designers, engineers. I mean, it kind of expands to anybody. But I guess the, at that point, the basis of it was mostly sort of um, ecologically minded designers and architects. Um, and... Um, and so that was great because then I suddenly had people that I could talk to about this stuff and I could see that it, they were trying and there were practices out there that were interested in this stuff, which meant there were clients, you know, and the, and the clients were coming. And, and I mean, I'm thinking back now, that was quite a while ago. I think that was like, yeah, it was quite a while ago. So, um, so th- it just became like a nice place to know that you weren't on your own and that other people also strive to do the same thing that you wanted to achieve and so it was great so I got really involved in it and um, I you know did the events bit for a while and did their social media and then I made a new website and then I did the vice chair and I just kind of threw myself into it um, as I do Um, and it was great and um, but I was still trying to balance this like at this point I was designing in an architecture studio like I say, just full on design. It was great. Just design, design. I loved it. I loved the team. They were so creative. They were just, they, none of us were architects. We'd all come from different backgrounds and created this studio. They had a lot of architectural experience, especially the directors, but it, nobody was an architect. You know? It's all like architectural technicians and and, uh, and me, I guess. <laughs> like, uh, and, and, and we did really well. Like we did really, really well. We like created this, really wonderful um studio that people wanted to come and work for and we got some great landed some great projects um, and I think people just loved our enthusiasm for design and the fact that we were a bit different and not quite doing everything um, I've been very lucky that my first practice although it was like you know straight up architecture was a wonderful um starting off point but then every other practice I've ever worked for there's an element of like they've not been an architect involved you know it's always been that kind of like rebel studio and rebel practice and trying to do things differently um and I loved it I really really loved it but I was trying to I wasn't full-time I was three or four days a week I, I did that while I was at CAT um so another working and studying at the same time scenario but um when I finished CAT I stayed there for another year but I was still I had I had a lot of things going on I wanted to like help this local social enterprise um 
and I wanted to help them build and I was getting stuck into the how can you do volunteer design and build and how can you do that with insurance and tools and public liability and, and even just all this paperwork about who's the principal designer who's the principal contractor like there's a lot of legality surrounding just people want to pick up a, a drill and get stuck in um so I got really into all of that and I tried to understand it as best I could which is interesting because that is around the time that Hartwin were also kind of doing it but you you come from the complete different direction was come from a building perspective to then try and become a sort of vo- volunteer and student place to learn to build and I was coming at it from the architecture side I'd always had architectural student projects that we wanted to learn and so I was trying to figure it all out and I think I did figure it all out and um, it's a bit of a side tangent this and I don't want to focus on it too much but we a friend and I did start a company a community interest company um, to address that and I I think the way we set it up addresses all of these different issues of public liability and um, who's in charge of what and all this does and we've done maybe at least one project a year, a small project a year um, that's community-led. We worked with children one year. We worked with a children's charity, sorry. We worked with a bunch of architecture students that wanted us to kind of oversee what they were doing because they wanted to do this sort of thing and teach them. We worked with um, women's shelters and we worked with um, ex-offenders. So we actually had a really good time of it building on that like we can teach basic skills to people in order that they feel ownership over their building and what they are able to achieve um, and that's just a huge area of my life that was just all about that it was just I just was so satisfied in teaching people and at the same time I was tutoring at the back tutoring at the art school which was super nice <laughs> um, I'd always been under the impression that you couldn't go back to be a tutor unless you were a, a fully qualified architect or be someone famous at this point you know like I, I'd always under this impression that you couldn't you wouldn't be invited back to be a, a you know a tutor unless you had achieved something and I was actually ironically invited back to be a technical tutor which my peers found hilarious because I am like the least technically minded <laughs> in terms of interested in it like you know you got you got Andy and you got John and they're really interested in the passive house and the numbers and the proving and the you know and I'm so not like that um, but I think it was down to the fact that I had experience with materials and so I was able to see but have you thought about this connection and you could do it that way and so so it wasn't necessarily technical like you know make sure you get all your calculations correct but it was more it was just more um like invited there to share my knowledge from sustainable materials and things and that was enjoyable so there was a few years of just teaching and figuring out what I wanted to do um and yeah I came down to Hartwin on a on a, a project for a day to see what you guys were doing I like um, went on a, a festival build which is really interesting just to like see how they build fake kind of streets and which, things like that festival um it was boomtown nice yeah that's a good one for building fake streets it was good interestingly though i was there for three days we were building it all and then when the festival started i went against the entire stream of traffic because i was trying to leave and everyone was like sorry you can't go this way and I was like no I'm actually trying to leave they're like yeah but if you leave you can't come back in I was like no no, I know I'm I'm leaving leaving they're like but the festival's just starting Kirsty and I was like yeah not interested I'm going to the straw bale festival (laughs) (laughs) we'll be back after a quick break if you're looking for all things BMX racing you found the right podcast here at Lane 8 BMX Podcast, I'll speak to the local racer, the national racer, and even the Olympic level racer. I'm talking kids to the weekend warriors and much more. So get comfortable, turn up the volume, and remember to snap on green. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand there's music playing for three days, but I would like to go to the Straw Bale Festival, which is across the country. So I'm sorry, but I've done my part and now I'm leaving. And everyone's like, what's this girl? She's weird. She's leaving before it even started. So yeah, I, it was a bit, I was, I felt a bit like a bit sad, you know, I was like leaving the rave to go to like this geeky festival. <laughs> but I was like, yeah, it's been fun. But I'm off. I'm off to find my people. <laughs> so yeah, quite a few years of just like not knowing what to do, just not knowing what direction. 
knowing that I was a designer, knowing that I was a builder, but I wasn't fully a builder. I didn't have any you know, qualifications and skills in that area. And I refused to do the part three exam in the architecture area because I didn't want to be an architect. So yeah, quite a few years of like, what on earth? <laughs> like, and it's not just, it wasn't just what do I want to do? It was like, how on earth do I sell myself? Like, you have to make a living at the end of the day and you need, and people knew uh, there was no there was no it, it wasn't like there wasn't people coming to me for stuff constantly people were asking me to be involved in stuff but I just felt it needed to be more refined like this is what I offer people and I couldn't do it I just I tried so many times I had all these iterations on my website of who I am and what I deliver and it seemed to me quite disjointed and I struggled with it. I just really struggled with it. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, um, you know, the whole world kind of stopped and changed for the better for some reason. No, not so much. But regardless of that subject, um, it did provide everyone a moment to stop. Like it very much stopped. And in that moment, I realised that the only reason that I couldn't stop doing the things that I were doing was me Mm. it wasn't external pressure it wasn't like the pressure of other people it wasn't clients it wasn't contracts it was that I had never given my self permission to just stop and go in a different direction and I hadn't actually realized how much I wasn't enjoying the direction I was in um so I just kind of decided to give myself and say well the pandemic caused me to stop doing all that and just excuse it just give it an excuse and I I realized the only person I was giving an excuse to was myself like I no one else no one else cares like everyone else is like what's she gonna do next like no no one else cared and it was bloody brilliant um I just stopped and I just realized I didn't have to keep doing something because I felt like I had to keep doing something I just stopped and I was like what do I want to do um and it was absolutely beautiful timing and I applied for the building craft programme that the Princess Foundation run because you A, had to be NVQ level two in order to even get on the course, which meant that you actually had to be of trade level. You know, you had to be skilled. And I, at this point, was very much doubting that I could call myself a carpenter or a joiner or a woodworker in any way because I just had all these general building skills, natural mm-hmm. building skills. And I was really fortunate that they said, yeah, like you are experienced. You look like you know what you're talking about. Come on the course. When they and said um, a- trade, what did you what did you put in that mm-hmm. box? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So I was accepted onto it as a multidisciplinary slash designer. So Ooh. everyone, you know, you all apply and you're either a stonemason or you're a blacksmith or you're a roofer or you're an earth builder, as you were. Um, I was, a, Michael advised, I was a multidisciplinary. <laughs> um, and it did come with a caveat that within the first week of like summer school where you get to try different things, I could decide if I would like to do more placements surrounding stonemasonry or around timber framing. And, you know, I still have that mindset of learning. So I was still kind of like, well, I've done timber framing before. I know how to do that. I've done it in several projects now. I'll have a bash at stonemasonry. I did stonemasonry for one day and I was like, no. Nah! Not gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> even even Johnny the tutor was like, no, Kirsty, just no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, bless. Oh, well, it's just oh, it was, yeah, it was terribly disappointing, but clearly the right move. Like, I mean, we had to move this one big piece like about five different times because the mortar, you know, with lime mortar, it's not, it's it's not as firm as um, cement based mortar. So you have the ability to, if something's not sitting right, to take stone off. We did the mortar, put the mortar back on, put stone back on. We did it about five times. I was knackered. And <laughs> and I was just like, I'm not built for this as a career. And the other thing that was really notable was when we were chipping away, you're supposed to keep like a steady rhythm. Like stonemasons like tap, 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 tap. And Johnny Anderson always has a good beat going, like a real good beat in the in the workshop. Mm-hmm. And I kept going tap, 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 tap. And it was killing him. <laughs> it was killing him. It was like, it's just like, Chrissy, it's tap, 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 not tap, 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 tap. Um, so it was really quite amusing. And I was like, well, 
all right, I'm going back to the Timber Framers. Like, see you later. You know, that's me. I had I had to go. It's not for me. And it was quite liberating in the sense that I realised that I really liked timber framing. And the minute I went onto the timber framing team and I was there at my little tenon, you know, with my little block plane and my chisel, this big smile on my face. And I was like, oh, I'm in my happy place. Like, this is a happy place to yeah. be. Um, so, so I was really fortunate. I got to do the Building Craft Programme um, during COVID, which meant we were in lockdown, which meant 12 of us lived as a bubble on the site at Dumfries House Estate. And we did our live build. And usually live builds are small, like pagoda style um, projects within the estate. Mm-hmm. And they're very pretty and very nice, but there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, and I was delighted to hear that we were actually going to be working on an existing stone cottage so our team were doing a three bay crook frame and that was then going to be lifted inside the structure of the stone building, which was in decent like um, state of repair. So the stonemasons weren't doing too much repairs to it, but they were also going to build another building entirely. And then we were going to roof it. So there was a lot of like really good practical skills. Mm-hmm. And then having a couple of us on the team that had already worked with Green Oak Timber Frame and it was just a nice it was a really nice project to be involved in and, was, um, um, was and Steve, I'm from the was area. Was the tutor at that point? Nope. Um, we have we had Owen McClatchy and okay. he is also a previous student is from he? the Building Craft Programme. Ah. Yeah. So that was great. Owen's great. <laughs> um, and yeah it was great having someone that also knew what like what it's like and he'd done it before as well. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was a very good person to have as our tutor and um it was a really nice experience and then we all went on placements and so um we all went on placements which is a little difficult because it's covid not everyone was up and running things but um i was very fortunate and i got placed with um some really nice people and i i insisted on staying in scotland where possible so i insisted on scottish based placements where possible because uh the courses run from scotland and because what i was realizing was that traditional building skills a lot of people come up from England and Wales to the course and go back down south. And there is a lot of work in conservation down south and perhaps we're a little bit shy of skills up here. So I'd become more aware of that through knowing the people on the course previous years and being a bit involved in it. I'd also been asked to do a talk on one of their business skills. So I'd been involved and I knew a lot about the course before I started. Kind of to the point where I became like the person that would answer questions from my fellow students and like, I was like no 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 I'm a student too like don't I like ask Michael <laughs> like um but I didn't know enough about it and um so I got put on really good placements um one of which was Thompson Timber in Glenrothes just it's a Glenrothes and he taught me mill rule which is different from scribe rule mm, yes so, he, so he uses everything up a 90 degree aris which is a really interesting way of working and it's much more commercial and you can just do it faster um so that was fascinating because as much as my brain was like no but it's traditional you want to do scribe rule scribe rule is the right way i kind of kind of changed my mind a little bit because i was like well actually if you want to do timber framing and make a living out of it you have to have some shortcuts and this is a bloody good one so <laughs> um i really enjoyed it and i really enjoyed the kind of designs that he comes up with and the kind of clients he had and it was just a very nice eye-opening experience that in that part of Scotland there is a lot going on mm-hmm. and and I have you know I know that there's a lot of timber framing happening in sort of Perthshire and Stirling area and things like up there um, and it is a little disappointing to me that there's not a lot happening in the southwest coast of Scotland um, which is where I'm from where I'm based. Um, Do you think that is um, oh I've I've very nearly became a timber framer and yeah, me too. <laughs> for, for, for sort of one reason or another, I didn't. But I sort of one of the reasons I am not too upset about that is that I realise that generally you, as a timber framer, are working for very rich people because they're the only people that can mm-hmm. really afford a timber frame. Like there's a lot mm-hmm. of work, there's a lot mm-hmm. of timber. And I know the southwest of Scotland is a, um, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. and this is from you know, what I was told when I was doing the, the Prince Foundation, like that whole Ayrshire is, mm-hmm. is quite a d- deprived area and therefore, mm-hmm. you know, less money to, to build a really beautiful big timber frame. 
it is interesting to hear your perspective on it because obviously I grew up around here. Yeah. So I understand. It's that a wild speculation, East, by the way. I'm not. I'm, no, no, no. It's not. It's not. No, no, it's not. And the thing is, is East and North Ayrshire were, are ex mining communities and there was historically and perhaps still is a lot of deprivation. But, but the thing is, is there's a very stark contrast between South Ayrshire, which is where Ayr is, so Ayrshire. And I grew up in Ayr and I think there's a lot of wealth in the Ayr and mm. the surrounding areas. And you've got the Isle of Arran, you've got um, Seamill up the road and at Larks, um, down the way you go into like Dumfries and Galloway. There are pockets of probably more extreme wealth if you're going to contrast it yeah and from that perspective i don't see how that is any different from places up in perthshire because there will also be smaller villages up there that struggle to maintain um people's jobs and and don't know how to keep youth and young people in employment who will have to leave to go to bigger towns and cities so but they still have like the seaside towns and the and the and the big properties and things. So yeah, this is I do struggle with it, and I'm trying to get my head around it because I I I, I do believe that it, it that it shouldn't be any different. There's there's definitely in terms of like a market for it. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I I definitely think there is a market for it here, it, and and that's what's so interesting because the Princess Foundation is based here, and they're producing people with skills and yet the majority like 99 percent of the students are not sticking around here and and if they do stay they're maybe going to be in glasgow like you know there are people that aren't scottish but still stick around or this is where they came from and a lot of the traditional arts course um the traditional arts closing program a lot of them last year were from glasgow and um and do consider themselves to live here and things like that. So that is nice. But I just had a little bee in my bonnet because I was the only Scottish, you know, I was the only local person. Um, and, it, you know, when I have chosen to come back to Scotland to try and make a difference to where I'm from and like to to build a life here. And um, I, I'm sounding a little bit Scottish, English, Welsh. <laughs> I, I don't really like that. I don't really like that. But it's just different. We're different up here, and we've got different sizes of cities, different um, like capacities, and different populations as well. A different variation of skills and trades and all that sort of stuff. And um, having spent such a long time down in Wales and understanding that from a Welsh point of view, I knew I had to spend a lot of time up here to get to know all this and I think I'm at that place now where I do I do understand it and that's why I'm like quite keen to get more Scottish people on the course but it's not it's only because it's based here Mm. you know it's um it just seems like a a logical thing to try and encourage um so yeah so I don't know where I got to sorry I derailed you a little bit there Um, no no that's fine we're talking about timber framing uh I mean, yeah, timber framing, man. I, I, like, I tried to be a timber framer two years ago, and I'll tell you the route that I took instead of that, which is different. But we'll come to that. But yeah, um, I think with timber framing as well, um, if you work for a company, that's it. You're a timber framer, and that company produces timber frames. And I have spoken to some, some at the small end and some at the huge end, um, and they all come to the conclusion that the only thing they're providing is a timber frame. They have all entertained or gone down the route of doing more of the building and they have all circled back to, no, 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 the product that we sell is the timber frame, which I think is a very smart decision. Yeah, stick to what you know. Yeah, don't don't try and overstretch yourself and you end up getting yeah. getting caught not knowing what you're doing and, and yeah. financially liable. Yeah, exactly. And, and also just not doing the thing that you love. Mm. Like, if you love doing timber frame, do it timber frame. Definitely. So I think timber framers that work for companies... That is your job. You are now a timber framer. There are another group, should we say, of timber framers that exist on a freelance basis. You know, so there'll be companies that don't always have big projects and sometimes need a couple extra guys or a couple extra people to come and help them out. And and I would love to get involved in that a bit more because then you can do it a project by project basis. And like everything, that version of freelance where people have a little bit more freedom over what it is they choose to do would be wonderful. Um, so I do wonder if there's a bit more place for that in the world. Um, and that would be great. Um, and, and this all came out of 
this beautiful experience at the building craft program, which in some really, I know it sounds completely daft, but as an architect, I had absolutely no interest in conservation. Absolutely none. Because as an architect, there was no designing involved, really. I mean, there's problem solving and there's a lot to do. But for me, you know, it was never like a creative outlet. It was never something where you can design something new. So I wasn't interested in it. Then when I got into natural building, like it kind of, there's a crossover between old buildings and natural building materials, just because they typically were made from more natural building materials and they have the same philosophy and which is, you know, breathable construction. Um, so so there's, yep. there's knowledge there. Vernacular but materials. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 yet when I got to the building craft programme, I had this like real epiphany and I, I really, I can't believe I never saw it before, but it's not just the building crafts that you get involved in. So you don't just learn about stonemasonry and blacksmiths, blacksmithing and, and slating and lead work. And we also got introduced to like stained glass. We got introduced to like working with lime and which, you know, I'd come across before, but just in a different sense and like caustic tile making. Um, we've got people dyeing fabrics from natural, like, wool tapestry like there are so many traditional crafts involved in down at the estate and and part of the princess foundation in general and it just it just dawned on me one day you know i've come from a world where like you're doing architecture so or building so you're having to make a living um but it's quite a professional thing and then on the other hand on the flip side the thing that i guess i was scared away from and maybe a lot of people can relate to this that you're a starving artist because you're doing something, you're creating something for the hell of it, because you like it, because you're interested in it, you're passionate about it, but there's no end client. There's no client dictating what you do. You produce something entirely because you want to, and then if people like it and if they value it, they will purchase it from you. So you can't really rely on it to make a living. Um, you can, of course you can. There's ways to do this. But I'm just saying that the two extremes were just like, if you want to be arty, you either choose a route where you're lucky enough not to have clients and you can do whatever you want, explore whatever you want, but you, you struggle. Or you take on clients, you adapt your design and creativity to create something that they pay you for. And then there's this wonderful world in the, in the middle of traditional building skills. And it, it's like a combination of the two. It's it's a va- putting a value and paying for proper craftsmanship like proper craftsmanship and you can be like creating stone sculptures um carvings you can be carving wooden doors and forging metal handles and you can be so creative and so artistic and yet it's got a huge amount of value attached to it because it's promoting and enriching a traditional skill and I I cannot believe it took me to this point in my journey to appreciate it um but there you go I just I I was just like just so enriched by all this knowledge and experience and it made me feel really really encouraged by everything that goes into promoting traditional building skills and it's not just about you know keeping the old buildings that we've all decided are of historical and cultural importance alive it's not about that at all it's about like you can use all of those skills in a modern way in a contemporary design but just it's the skills it's like the non-mechanizing of everything and and um yeah non-chemically derived fossil fuel derived products that are cheaper Uh, and it's taking your time over stuff and it's and it's taking a bit of you know, precious moments to enjoy it and things like that. So, yeah, so I sort of came around to that, learned a bit about that. And then from there, finally, I finally, about now, like two years after, shaking off the feeling of imposter syndrome. <laughs> 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 so I, I'm, I'm sure you, you, you probably experienced it when you were on the course, but I'd say everyone on our course at the Building Craft Programme all experienced imposter syndrome is what we all had in common it was quite sad to see but it was that all these amazingly talented and skilled individuals hadn't gotten there through a traditional route of a trade in a college and so doubted that they could call themselves hand on heart the thing that they were Mm -hmm. and 
I I am hope I hope I speak on behalf of my whole group. I hope we've all overcome that. Um, because it's a nice place to finally be able to say, actually, yes, I am a carpenter and actually, yes, I am a joiner. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you, Kirsty. Um, as I said at the beginning, this is part one of two. Uh, you're going to have to wait a week for the second part uh, until I'm back from France. Uh, just time to say that there is a whole load of links in the show notes. If you heard something that, that sparks your interest uh, to some of the organisations, uh, that includes uh, Grain Architecture, Heartwin, uh, the Prince's Foundation, Centre for Alternative Technology, and a whole load more. So do delve more into them if they sound interesting. Also, if you do want to support the podcast, then head to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability and you can support there. And if you want to support the podcast, not financially, then a review would be fantastic. Head on over to iTunes or share this episode wherever you can and let more people know about it. Okay, that's it from me. Until next week. See ya.